Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Heavenly Father, we continue to thank you for that our identity is rooted in you. Lord, and that in all these things that you are faithful. And one of the things that we can always count on, Lord, is your faithfulness. It is part of your character, and you do not change. And Lord, today as we open scripture and examine uh, another story in the Gospel of Luke, Lord, we ask that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking to each one of us individually and uniquely as we unpack your word, and that you would have a special and unique word for all of us. And we just say that we love you, Lord. We love you and we worship you. And we agree and we are thankful that you are faithful. Amen. Uh, If you have a Bible or or a Bible app, you're welcome to follow along if you want to. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. So last week we started a sermon series. And we're going to be spending really the, the rest of the year looking at the Gospel of Luke, the, the book of Luke, and um, we're, we'll, I mean, we'll break it into kind of smaller uh, components or, or segments, but right now we're in, in the first part and where Jesus is really kicking off his ministry, and uh, so last time we, we talked about the, the book of Luke in general. Um, Luke's account of Jesus is long. It's the longest of the, the four Gospels. Uh, it is accurate. Luke was a very smart man. Uh, he wrote with incredible detail. He had great writing style. He also wrote the book of Acts, so there's this neat continuity between the two of them. Uh, and we talked about John the Baptist. Luke opens it up with the story of John the Baptist and, and John the Baptist preparing the way and how he came in the spirit of Elijah, meaning he fulfilled that Old Testament prophecies about Elijah preparing the way, uh, and just how all of John's life was geared around making Jesus known, uh, and just what a remarkable thing that is, and even how we can can learn from that. And so today we're looking at, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist, and he's about to go into the wilderness for 40 days, and there he's going to be tempted by Satan, and he's going to fast the entire time. And, and just as a definition, you know, fasting is where we refrain from food, sometimes food and water, and somehow in ways that, that, that we will probably never understand this side of heaven, but somehow fasting adds power to our prayer and at times helps us hear God better. And so Jesus is, is going to be doing that for 40 days. I want to read this section of scripture to you, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. So I'm in Luke, I'm in chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 15. Uh, Verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, where he had been baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. 
And Jesus answered, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their uh, hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and report about him went all through the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The first thing I would point out is, you know, Jesus was fully man, but Jesus was also fully God. And so from, a, um, from the man perspective, like there is stuff in all of this that, that we can relate to. But at the same time, I, I have to acknowledge that, that, that from the God perspective, that there are probably layers and elements of these temptations that uh, like we, it, it's just going to be hard for us to relate to, right? I mean, the temptation to have all kingdoms of all time worship you, like that's going to appeal to Jesus in a way that just doesn't appeal to me. Honestly, that, doesn't, that sounds... Like a logistical headache, honestly, I'm not interested in that one. So, um, but for Jesus, there was a temptation in that that, that will just be different than, than what we can understand. So, so we do want to understand what was going on, but at the same time, to really look at, at what it is that, that we can relate to. The other thing, too, is that there's always a danger when you're talking about temptation, and that is that you just degrade into this place of like, well, just, just try harder. You didn't try hard enough. Try harder. You know, boy, if, if you were really committed, if you tried harder, you know, I, 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 think, you'd, I think you'd be fine. I once heard uh, one person, and I don't, it was kind of part joke and part conviction, but they said the typical three-point sermon is God is great, but you're pathetic, so try harder. So we don't want to do that, because that's a lame sermon, right? The purpose is not to say, you know, Jesus did it, go home and try harder. That, that, that doesn't work. The, the point is to learn from Jesus so that we can successfully navigate temptations on our own as well, too. So here's the first temptation, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now you got to remember, like God fed the Israelites, however many thousands or millions of people, in the desert for 40 years. Um, Jesus fed several thousand people off some kid's lunch. Right? Jesus claimed that stones could, could be made to, to cry out and worship and praise. To, so to turn a few loaves, or to turn a few stones into loaves is, like, that's entirely doable. Like, that's completely, like, that's actually pretty small and easy compared with all of these other miracles that God has done and, and, and will do. Instead, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, he humbled you, he let your hunger, uh, um, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So there's this temptation for Jesus to eat something, which is very understandable. He's hungry. But I think there is something more going on here. I think there is something deeper. 
I, I think that in this we also see a temptation to satisfy immediate desires and in doing so lose sight of the long-term goal, right? Which is something that all of us can relate to because when we are tired, when we are stressed, when we are sad, when we are lonely, when we are feeling defeated, there's a temptation to do something, to find something, because you just, you just want to feel good for just a few moments of time. And so we, we look for something that makes us feel good in the short term. And sometimes those things are okay, right? Like you need a nap, or you should go on a walk, right? Or go relax and read a book, right? Like there is good stuff in that. But there can be this, this temptation to be drawn to something that is sinful, something that offends God, that is bad for us, that, that is bad for others, something we have to hide, right? Because we're in this low place, we just want a quick fix for something that helps us just feel good for a few moments. And then in doing so, we give in to a temptation that, that we shouldn't. I think that for Jesus as, as well, too. Because, I mean, there, I actually suspect that, that the 40 days were, were full of temptations. And these are the three that, that get recorded. And my suspicion is that there is even a, a deeper level, a temptation or desire to rely on something other than God. Um, rather than saying, God will sustain me, Jesus was tempted to behave in a way that says, I will take care of myself. I will sustain myself. God cannot be trusted. I need to look out for me above all others. There is our world, like, as you kind of go through the eras, it, it seems like we just, there's just different nonsense that, that comes up. And right now, it seems like we're on this kick of just, just nonsense and garbage around self-love, learning to love yourself more, finding your strength from within, putting yourself first, right? Like there's this whole wave of just kind of non-biblical teaching that says you have within you all that you need to sustain you. Uh, you don't. Because <laughs> if that was the case, you wouldn't be in this problem. It just fails every logic test, like 101. Like if that was the case, you wouldn't be in this mess to begin with. There, there, there is value in, in sharing troubles um, with others that are close to you. Absolutely. And it is true that there are times where your contribution needs to be that you just need to suck it up and get it done, right? But it is also true that you alone are never enough, that self-love can easily become an idol or is an idol, and that the fullness of what you need is not inside you. Right? People are making themselves the end goal. They're making themselves the idol. They're, they're making themselves the means of, of attaining that idol. And, it, and it's nonsense. Jesus is enough. You are not. Second temptation. Starting in verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him... To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. I find this one fascinating, because in a way this was the thing that Jesus wanted. This was, 
This was the thing that he wanted and they came for, and that was the people. Right? Satan offered to hand to Jesus all the kingdoms. The people. Right? And, and he even makes this offer kind of indirectly, just that the pain, the suffering, the anguish that, that you and I experience, Satan is, is prepared to withdraw all of his attacks, all of his assault, if only Jesus would worship Satan. And it begs a question like, why is worship such a big deal? Because this, this was the thing Jesus came for, was the people. Let me put it to you like this, using kind of a, our current world situation. If Putin were to say to Ukraine, look, I will withdraw all of my forces, all of my tanks, all of my missiles, all of my soldiers, if your leaders will simply obey me, worship me, follow me, do what I say, in exchange for freedom, right? Like, how do you, like, would that be true freedom? Like, how do you suppose the people would respond? How, like, how would the, the leaders and do you honestly think that in the long run that would be better for the people? As, as much as it was the people that Jesus loved and the thing that Jesus came to save, this would have solved nothing. And Jesus saw right through that, right? Because, one, even if Satan withdraws, we still have sin nature in our hearts that, that needs to be dealt with. So this would not have provided the salvation the reconciliation, the connection with God that, that we needed. On the cross, Satan ultimately is defeated. So Satan offers Jesus a short-term, short-sighted, partial win, and Jesus didn't fall for it. And instead, he, he, he hung in there, he stayed the course, and ultimately Jesus won the war. Also in this, uh, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Now, I, I want to expand on this just uh, a little bit, because Satan says something kind of fascinating in here. And um, I want to give you a, I don't know the right word for it, if it's a theory or an idea or, or a concept. And it's one of those things where I can't find any one verse that kind of tightly says this, but I have found a lot of verses that support it, and I haven't found any verses that contradict it. Um, also a reminder, in Scripture, and really in life, there's a big difference between authority and power. Right? Authority is where you have the right to do something. You have, you have permission or the blessing from someone else to do something. Where power is you have the, the strength to do something. Right? So here's the idea. Garden of Eden, God gives authority to rule the earth to Adam and Eve, mankind. Okay? When they sin, Adam and Eve surrender that authority to Satan, which is what he claimed right here, verse 6. To you I will give all this authority, this is Satan talking, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And it's interesting to me because Jesus never accused Satan of lying. Like, it, it seemed to be this thing like where they both agreed on it. When Jesus is crucified on the cross, he takes back his authority and he gives it to the church. Matthew 28, 18, great commission after, after Christ has been crucified. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples, right? But Satan still has power. 
right? Authority and power. And, and, and that's why he's still a problem. Um, and you could also even say that he does still have authority over those who refuse Christ. Colossians 1.13, um, he, so that's Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, or the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A lot more verses I could use to, to kind of support that or unpack that. Those are just kind of the popular ones. Third temptation. Moving on to the third temptation. Verse 9. And he, Satan, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and also on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. There's a lot we could unpack in that sentence, but we can't today. I was kind of w- w- looking through that. Like, what's the temptation here, right? Like the whole jump off a building and hope angels catch you. And I think it's either safety or fame, right? To test, is God really going to keep you safe, right? Or just the incredible fame that would come from jumping off the pinnacle of the temple and then not get hurt, right? Because then everyone's drawn to Jesus because you just did something crazy and you're fine. The original um, lie or misdirection that Satan used in the Garden of Eden, right? Like the very first thing he pulls out of his little bag of tricks at the very beginning of the story of all mankind is... Did God really say? He's talking to Eve, and it's basically, did God really say that you can't eat, that you're really going to die? Like, did God really say? And you see that all over today as people uh, go after, attack the credibility of Scripture. Like, did God really say? And there's an element of that in here as well, too. Like, did God really say that he would keep you safe? Or did he really mean it? Like, did God really mean it when he said that you wouldn't be hurt, right? Like, was, was God being honest when he said his angels would protect you? Jesus replies with Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And the temptation today or the desire today is that we'll do a similar thing. We'll say, well, if and, and then we try to define the terms of what love looks like, right? Because if God really loved me, he would fix my marriage, right? If God really loved me, you know, he would, he'd take away my, all the disease, right? If God really loved me, I wouldn't have to suffer through this thing that's happening. But the thing is that God does love you. And he died on the cross for you. And that the absolute worst of heaven, if that's even a sentence, is still better than the best of earth. And that there are times where we lose the battle, but in the end, we win the war. Jesus won the war. The cross changes everything. The cross validates everything about Christ. And really, you could say there's no need to ask for additional proof of God's love. 1 Corinthians one twenty two. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. 
Because that right there is the proof of God's love and that in the end God wins. For the believer whose final destination is companionship in heaven with God, anything you encounter, the, anything you encounter on earth, good or bad, that is the worst that you will ever experience. 80 kind of rough years start and then eternity of goodness with God. For the unbeliever who has rejected God, who, whose final destination is separation from God in, in a prison system called hell, earth is the best you will ever experience. This is the best it's ever going to get. Like I'm almost tempted to say live it up now because this is, this is the best you're going to get. There's a part of this story as well that I think that is very significant. Um, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So from this point forward, Jesus begins his ministry. It's full of power and miracles and authority and all these incredible events. I can't help notice, though, that how in verse 1, we read that Jesus left full of the Holy Spirit, but Scripture tells us in verse 14, he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. To me, that seems very significant. That, that there was some kind of transformation, anointing, transition, empowerment, I'm not sure, but full of and in power of, to me, are pretty, are, those are two different words. How he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as Mennonite brethren, we believe that we receive the Holy Spirit when we're saved, when, when we become Christians, but at the same time we acknowledge that there are, and again, struggling for terms here, but there are moments, there are events where it's just like the Holy Spirit just comes in power or expresses himself, or if you want to call that anointing or kind of whatever kind of charismatic and non-charismatic terminology you want to slap on that. But, but there, there are just moments or events where the Holy Spirit moves in an extraordinary way. Right? And we can make ourselves available to that, but I don't know of any, any formula where we get to fabricate it or force it other than just say, hey, Lord, I'm available. Another observation, you know, Scripture says that Satan tempted Jesus when he was hungry. Sometimes people extrapolate that and they think that Jesus was tempted when he was weakest. And I would tell you that is a very ignorant statement. People who say that Jesus was spiritually weakest after fasting have never fasted and they don't really know what they're talking about. I think, actually, that it's possible that knowing the temptations would come, Jesus fasted in preparation for that because of the spiritual strength that can come through that. Jesus was not at his weakest point when he was tempted. He may have been at, at his strongest. So why was Jesus ultimately successful against the temptations? James tells us that temptations are not from God. They're either from our sinful nature, or we see other places that they're from Satan, right? Uh, James is very clear, the book of James is very clear that God does not tempt us. Um, even the Lord's Prayer has us, has us praying to avoid temptation, right? Deliver us from temptation, right? But Scripture tells us two things about Jesus in this story. One is that he was full of the Holy Spirit, we see that at the beginning, and that secondly, that he referenced Scripture in response to all of these. And so I would say that ultimately that that's your secret recipe when it comes to dealing with temptation is do you have the Holy Spirit 
and, uh, and do you know scripture? Um, I would add one more thing, though. Um, we see Satan, you know, misquoting or distorting scripture, and, you know, scripture can be manipulated, and people pull out crazier ideas. I, I think that you can make a good argument that, that we also need good community when it comes to discerning scripture. Jesus was able to read scripture and intake all that information free from any kind of sinful mind. That's not us. We have the sinful mind, right? And so you, because you and I struggle with the sin and the flesh and all that other kind of stuff, like we'll never have that clarity that Jesus had when, when he read scripture. And even Luke 24, verse 45, Jesus and, and the disciples, we read, he, Jesus, opened their minds, the disciples who had just spent three years with him, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. So there's something to be said for the Holy Spirit helping us understand scripture. So having the Holy Spirit knowing scripture, but then also just the need for community to help us understand scripture. Last idea that I would share with you on this actually comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus went through these temptations. Other temptations as, as well too, right? Jesus has literally been, been there, done that. He understands whatever it is he understands. And the result is that we can approach him with incredible freedom. And they even call it the throne of grace. And that as we approach that grace, we can receive mercy and we can receive grace, right? When the temptation hits... This idea that we run to God, not from God. Right? You will find grace and mercy because he understands. He has been there. He gets it. He's been in your shoes. He understands how hard this is. He will be very gracious with you. Run to God, not from God, because there you will find mercy and grace. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.